If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie. Scripture lesson this morning is Psalm 63, verses 1 through 8. O God, you are my God, I seek you, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands and call on your name. My soul is satisfied as with a rich feast, and my mouth praises you with joyful lips when I think of you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Here ends this song inspired by God. May that same spirit grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Until pretty recently, if you were to ask me which book of the Bible is the least helpful, the most problematic, and the absolute worst to preach from, I would have said the Psalms. Except the 23rd Psalm, right? We can save that. Um, we can keep it for two reasons. One, it is a comfort to many, many people. And while we can change the color of the carpet, don't mess with the 23rd Psalm. <laughs> and of course, the second reason you all have heard before, the 23rd Psalm makes clear God's preference for Oklahoma State University. <laughs> The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still water. I've been saving it for years. But beyond that, we can just get rid of the whole thing. I know that I am not alone in my feelings about the Psalms. It's quite a disturbing book. Many people object to the imprecatory psalms, imprecatory, those psalms which call down curses and disaster on one's enemies, 
Psalm 10 calls on God to break the arm of the wicked and the evildoers. Psalm 58 hopes their foe vanishes like water that runs away like grass trodden down and withered like the snail that dissolves in its slime. And Psalm 140 asks God to let the psalmist's enemies be flung into pits, no more to rise. This is not exactly the love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you we find on the lips of Jesus. Most of us are happy to leave the Psalms alone, happy to stay in the back half of the Bible, away from all that judgy stuff in the front half, all the while assuring ourselves that we are more like Jesus, not like those people who overwrote those, those Psalms. Ugh. And to be fair, not everyone feels this way about the Psalms. The fifth century monk John Cashin had an annoyingly positive relationship with the Psalms to describe how the soul of a monk arrives at purity of prayer, he wrote, the monk moves so deeply into the thinking of the Psalms that he sings them not as though they had been composed by the prophet, but as if he himself had written them, as if this were his own private prayer uttered amid the deepest compunction of heart. Certainly, he thinks of them as having been specifically composed for him, and he recognizes that what they express was made real not simply once upon a time, but that now, every day, they are being fulfilled in himself. This kind of reflection makes me feel about as spiritual as a turnip. The rest of the quote reads, then, indeed, the scriptures lie ever more clearly open to us. They are revealed, heart and sinew. Our experience not only brings us to know them, but actually anticipates what they convey. The meaning of the words comes through to us, not just by way of commentaries, but by what we ourselves have gone through. Seized with the identical feelings in which the psalm was composed or sung, we become, as it were, its author, that's the part that gets me, seized of the identical feelings in which the psalm was composed or sung, we become, as it were, its author. I, I'm, I'm not sure any of us would claim to be the author of some of these psalms. I mean, I mean, we would never heap burning coals on the heads of our enemies. We would never ask God to smite anyone. unless someone says something we don't like, or if we're fighting with them on the internet, or if you've ever been to a youth soccer game, it often sounds like the fans are actually reading the imprecatory psalms aloud to the refs and the other players and the other players' mothers. And these are all examples we can laugh at, but if we let ourselves think too hard about what we've wished on people who have done us wrong, or who we think have harmed us, or the people we love well, our judgment of the psalmist hits a little too close to home. Seized of the identical feelings in which the psalm was composed or sung, we become, as it were, its author. Indeed, we are in turns both frightened and fascinated by the familiarity of the psalms. 
And this is what's so dangerous about the Psalms. They were written by someone more like us than not. They were written by people who knew the joy and the grief, victory and defeat, comfort and dread, people who knew what it meant to be abandoned, to want revenge, who want forgiveness, and they let it spill onto the pages of the Psalm like a knocked over cup of coffee. And the truth is it's just just a bit messy for us, clean up on aisle eight. Feelings should be kept in check, neatly boxed up, especially if we're talking to God. God only really wants our best. Prayers shouldn't be overly emotional, much less honest. But the Psalms model something very, very different. Sometimes the psalmist's freedom before God is astonishing, It confounds all ordinary teachings about prayer. For instance, Psalm 39 and 88 are unremitting accusations directed against God's forgetfulness, contempt, and enmity toward the faithful. In Psalm 39, the psalmist actually demands less of God's unwelcome attention. Turn your gaze from me so I may show some cheer before I go away and am no more. Can you imagine saying that to God? The psalmist, though, trusts that God expects us to be authentic, which leads me to believe that the psalmist has been through some things and knows that the first step to recovery is admitting that there's a problem. And perhaps just as important, the psalmist reaches out for help. In her book, Wondrous Depth, theologian Ellen Davis writes, the Psalms give voice to a despair that is one degree short of absolute. And that one degree gives them a place in the book called Praises and in the life of those learning to praise God in freedom. Although he is speaking of a secular poem, Wendell Berry's comment is apt. The distinguishing characteristic of absolute despair is silence. There is a world of difference between the person who, believing that there is no use, says so to himself or to no one, and the person who says it aloud to someone else. A person who marks a trail into despair remembers hope and thus has hope, even if just a little. The psalmists then are marking the trail into despair in God's plain sight so that God can follow to the bottom of the night the one who is crying out in anguish. And that makes all the difference. Yes, there are many things to learn from the Psalms insofar as they can be used to reflect on our own behavior and as a model for honest spirituality. Our Psalm this morning has lessons for us too. It is, in many ways, like The creed from Deuteronomy we learned a few weeks ago, you remember it? A wandering Aramean was my ancestor. To repeat, it is to practice reorientation. Psalm 63 does the same thing. The superscript of Psalm 63 tells us that this is a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Scholar Amanda Buckheiser observes that the Judean wilderness is a hot, dry, and barren land that has little capacity to sustain life. Basic resources like food and water are scarce. In this context, we can imagine David's physical thirst. We can feel his physical hunger. 
And yet, the psalmist's physical needs only serve to draw attention to his spiritual longing. Oh God, you are my God. I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. The psalmist's desire for God is so fundamental that even physical needs are considered secondary to keeping the psalmist alive. Most liberal Christians will put up a fight at this point, protesting on the grounds of bad theology. Hunger is real, thirst is real, poverty is real. Praying and praising God doesn't right injustice, nor does it put food on the table. We're not reading it. And it is really easy to dismiss these lines as written by a forerunner of the evangelical emotionalism that has completely rejected the exhortation that we should show our faith by our deeds. But in our eagerness to make sure we're not that kind of Christian, we risk losing wisdom from our text. For tucked into these lines of poetry, our value statements, oh God, you are my God. And I wonder if we can repeat those lines with an ounce of honesty, for there are so many things we turn into God. It doesn't take a preacher to name what becomes God in our lives, but since I'm here, <laughs> money, status, Perfection, the next thrill, ego, control, busyness, being right, reputation, the list goes on. But instead of dreaming about the next deal, the psalmist focuses their thoughts on God. My soul is satisfied as with a rich feast and my mouth praises you with joyful lips when I think of you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. I would say that this kind of spirituality, like that of the monks, also makes me feel about as spiritual as a turnip. But this is David we're talking about. King David, a man deeply, deeply flawed, but one who showed his spiritual work in the Psalms, much like a student shows their work as they resolve a math problem. In the context of Lent, this psalm models a spirituality that Lenten disciplines seek to cultivate, a centering of God in our lives. And it does so by noting those things that compete for a hold on our lives, that try to capture our attention, that to which we are at risk of giving our whole selves over to. To love and desire is inherent in what it means to be human. We don't choose whether we love, but what we love. And what we choose to love, how we direct our desires, is shaped by the values, expectations, and practices of the culture in which we participate. And for most of us, the culture that has the strongest hold on our lives is consumer capitalism. So normalized are the values, expectations, and practices associated with it that we forget it is the air we breathe. 
People are assessed for what they contribute to the economy, either by making money or spending it. We know the lines. Get what's yours or someone else will. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. God helps those who help themselves. It is a script, a liturgy even, that we participate in without a second thought. And it is this liturgy that directs our desires and shapes our loves. Individually, we spend our lives protecting what we have and working to acquire what we don't yet have. Collectively, this liturgy affects how we respond to almost everything, the environment, immigration, healthcare, public education. We are determined to save the earth from choking on carbon dioxide. Unless we have to change our lifestyles too much, please don't ask us to use public transportation. We are sympathetic to the families fleeing violence and poverty until it is suggested that we meet them at the airport with the goods they need to start over. That will take time, time to be present, time we don't think we have. We are interested in paying people a living wage unless it costs, increases the cost of things we want to buy. We are outraged by the news that rich parents have been paying for their children to get a seat at the best universities, but we don't seem quite as bothered by the private school system that shadow parallels our public school system, even though it too makes the best education accessible to those children whose parents can pay. We are generous, but only to the point that to be more generous would change our lifestyle, and only if we get a tax credit. We are for justice and equality until it steps on the toes of our privilege. This liturgy we hear every day shapes how we think and how we act, pushing us towards protectionism, acquisition, and isolation. But in Psalm 63, we find a counter-liturgy, uh, an orientation-shifting reminder of priorities and values. O oh God, you are my God. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. Is to school our hearts in the things of God so that what we long for, what we seek, what we desire is not more of this world, which is to say, not more of the rat race, but more of God, which is to say more love, more mercy, more justice, more peace. Psalm 63 is meant to disciple us in an alternative set of values, expectations, and practices that reflect God's heart for the world. So, along with the suggestion I made two weeks ago that we adopt the creed we found in Deuteronomy, I will also suggest this week that we take up Psalm 63 as a liturgy of resistance to those things that would otherwise capture our hearts and influence how we make decisions. It is a prompt to help us consider what we hunger and thirst after, what satisfies our soul, and to what our soul clings. If you're nervous about starting a new practice three weeks into Lent, take comfort in the fact that you'll be in good company. 
This is one of the reasons we come to church. You don't have to do anything alone. Show up this afternoon at three o'clock for Evensong, where together we'll practice praying and reflecting on the Psalms. Candlelight will change our perspective. The silence will give us an opportunity for our ears to hear. We'll lean on words we've inherited and use them to discern wisdom for the work ahead. Which reminds me of one more reason the book of Psalms is not completely without redemption, and that is its placement in the Bible, which makes it easier to find than most other books in the Bible, and is an, an orientation familiar to this congregation. You can practice with me, just take that hymn, that, that Bible out of the hymn, next to the hymnal, out of the pew. There you go, just right in front of you. You can share. And then all you have to do is open it just left of center. We may be closer to home than we think. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. Mayflower also has a full church school for children of all ages available during the 11 a.m. service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.